Mark 14, 12 to 31. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, burnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I will tell you the truth. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it, and said, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the mountain of olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told him, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Amen. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Um, we're continuing on in Mark. And like I said, it's a bit out of season to be looking at these like pre-Easter um, passages of the Bible, but it's getting our head focused on Jesus for the start of the year, which is a fantastic way to be starting the year. And um, Jesus is who we follow, so we want to uh, we want to focus on Him and hear from Him and hear understand Him more deeply. Um, it's going to be Australia Day this week. I don't know for me for a while Australia Day was probably my favourite um, public holiday. I'm not sure why. It just felt like the right time of summer to. Um, to have a barbie and relax and things like that, but um, it's a bit it's a bit contentious issue at the moment, isn't it? Australia Day. Um, what's been a feature of Australia Day now for I think it's for about 12 years is the lamb and beef industry's advertisement telling you to eat lamb on Australia Day. So um, they've picked up on the the contentious issue, and we're going to watch their ad for 20, um, 2018. Has anybody seen it yet? You're about to see it. 
satirical commentary on our current divided political climate. What? Just go inside! Right! If you're right, you are right About every single issue The left can go and cry Throw them a tissue You tell them that If you're a left, you stick up for the little guy I mean, person We're all equal, no one left behind If you're right, you think equal rights are wrong It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve Well, I'm Steve and I lean right Let's go, Adam Caps are melting, the seas are rising We find your ignorance very surprising Stop with your constant political correctness Now we can't even celebrate Christmas Well, I'm too scared to cause offence That's why I'm sitting on the bench Get up my bench! Right, left, right, left, right, left Stop! We're being ridiculous Issues are serious, but this outrage has gone too far. And the land is ready. Whether you're left or right, there's no right or wrong, no reason we can't all get along. And remember, we live in this great country with beaches and bungees and There you go. Is anyone heading down to the butcher? <laughs> Does lamb really unite Australia? It's a bit of a funny prospect, isn't it? Like all good advertising, we can at least, um, they at least give us the impression that it can so that they can sell more of it to us. I actually think this ad's pretty clever. Um, lamb side story is what they've called it. So if you're familiar with West Side Story and uh, two different gangs, I don't even know how that story ends. but. Um, if you've been following the discussion around Australia Day, there is the movement at the moment to completely boycott it. And yet, in this ad, I think they've managed to suggest that um, Australia Day is actually an opportunity to unite, to unite around what we have in common. Now, they've got an interest in doing that because it's one of their biggest marketing <laughs> campaigns on the back of Australia Day, so they can't have that go, uh, that go off the agenda. But it, this kind of thinking that's behind this ad... There's something that's just too simplistic about its message. It's, it's something too simplistic because what this ad is really trying to claim is something that is pretty co a common held belief in Australia. It, it's an idea that uh, we can all just get along with just a little bit more understanding. If we just understand people that we're different to a little bit more, set aside our differences, focus with what, on what we have in common, it, everything will just be okay. As if the problems in our societies, the problems in our communities, in our personal relationships, as if they can just be brushed over by finding some common ground to stand on. 
As followers of Jesus, this is actually something we're up against. This is, a, this is a worldview that clashes with our view of the world. See, we're followers of a message that actually says, no, there's no common ground left. There's no common ground left between us and God because the relationship is broken. Our worldview sees people differently and we see ourselves differently. Now, something that I think is, is truer of what the kind of uh, status quo view of the world in Australia is, what most people think, is when the, the host intervenes in their dueling songs and she says, these issues are serious and she sings that little part, but then she just stops singing and says, beside, hey, the barbecue's ready. It's like this idea that, well, there's lots of serious things, but we're so wealthy at the moment. We've, we've kind of come so far. Let's just go and eat. No, let's, let's not even worry about these issues that are around us. Instead, we can just keep on eating and consuming and getting on our, with our lives because this is 2018 Australia. It's modern. It's prosperous. Let's just get on with it. It's another thing that following Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we're actually up against. Now, I'm not sure if it's ironic or something else, but this is the passage that I'd already thought of, of speaking about today, and it's a festival centred around a meal of lamb. So I thought, well, this is a pretty good thing to tie in for what we're talking about today. See, at the start of Mark 14, or 14 verse 12, they're actually preparing for the Passover, and it's customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, cook it up, and that's the centre of the meal. But the context couldn't be any more different, could it, to what we have coming up to Australia Day. So the whole context for the Last Supper is the Passover. That's why we gave that kids talk this morning. The Passover being that annual celebration of, of God's intervention in Egypt. And really it's where God's justice and mercy are powerfully put on display as the Pharaoh in his stubbornness is a recipient of God's just action. But at the same time, those that will humble themselves and listen to God, speaking through Moses, receive his mercy. Just in what Jesus says in this passage, it's actually a massive reinterpretation of this Passover, of this festival. It's a massive reinterpretation of actually what the Bible says about sacrifice, what it says about the Passover, and then what it goes on to say about God's covenant with people. So I'm going to do things slightly differently this morning. These passages can actually be quite familiar with us. As, as Christians celebrating the Lord's Supper somewhat frequently, we're reminded that Jesus did this. We, we know that this meal happened. Um, and the news that Jesus died for us, like he says there, this is my body given for you, this is my blood, it's the foundation of our life. It's familiar to us. My hope, though, is that we can understand some things that actually take us deeper into the background of what Jesus has done for us. And not just for the sake of knowing more about the Bible. It's not a Bible study, but it's so that I think we can, if we understand this more deeply, it can actually propel us living with the freedom that Jesus has given through his sacrifice and that he's offered us through this new covenant, through this new promise. So I actually want to make use of a couple of really good videos. And these videos are ones that are going to come up in that Read Scripture program. They're produced by the same people. 
Um, but they're ones that explain to us the notion of sacrifice and, the, and the, what the Bible means by covenants. And so we're going to watch some videos today, and in between those bits, I'm going to make some explanations about, um, about these things and show what it really takes to bring people together, more than just a lamb barbecue, but what it takes to bring us and God back together. So beginning in verse 12, we, we read that Jesus was getting his disciples ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb. This notion of sacrifice is pretty strange. I haven't sacrificed anything lately. Um, I had to kill a redback yesterday, but that wasn't a sacrifice. The first video that we're going to watch explains what sacrifice is in the Bible. So it's going to take us through that. And I want you to try to marry up in your understanding what we heard in the kids' talk with what this teaches us about sacrifice. So here's the first video. How long for the world to be good? for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead. And we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. You know, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless. 
because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is this sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. It's not cryptic to realize that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. When he talks about, this is my blood poured out for you and this is my body broken for you, it's pretty clear what's going on. But I don't want us to miss these three things about it. The three things. First one, when it comes to the preparation of the Passover meal, if you have a look up there, he's got it all sorted. Okay, He's got everything ready as they need it. He's worked out the place. He's got the food supply. Verse 16 says that when the disciples went looking, everything was ready. The second thing is the meal of the Passover, when it was celebrated, what they would do is they'd actually talk about what happened at the time of Egypt. And as they made the bread, they talked about that they needed to leave in a hurry. And as they sacrificed the lamb, they talked about 
that it was given for them. They would have some kind of bitter herbs in there. And that was symbolic in a way of, of the pain and sadness associated with judgment falling on the Egyptians. They would eat the unleavened bread because it would be prepared quickly and they were in a hurry. And as they had the meal, they would have spoken about all these things. Jesus is doing the same thing, but in a way that reinterprets what's going on around them. He's speaking not of what's happened, but what will happen to him in just a day's time. Jesus speaks about the bread they're eating and the wine, but he doesn't mention the lamb, does he? That's because he is the lamb. He is the sacrifice that will be given. And so the third thing about this not to miss is that he is offering himself. See, Jesus offers himself as this sacrifice. As he says it, he says, take it. This is my body. This is my blood poured out for many. Jesus is willing. Jesus is willing in giving himself into the situation that lies ahead of him. So these three things that Jesus is in control, that he's explaining and connecting himself to the sacrifice, and that he's offering himself as that sacrifice, what they do for us is they remind us and teach us and confirm for us that God is in control. He's in control in this situation. He's in control of what will come. God is in control of everything. God's nature is that he is in control of everything. It's even true over what we read of Judas. We focused a bit on him last week, but here again we see Jesus predict that he's going to betray him. Even though he knew about his evil, Jesus knew about it. Jesus hadn't planned for it to happen. It was Judas' own decision. Jesus even has time to stop it. Jesus judges it for what it is. But in all that, Jesus is sovereign over it. He's in control. See, the hope that our divided world can just get a little bit more understanding of one another, at best, that's pretty naive. At worst, it actually gives us a false hope that humanity will work itself out. The stubbornness of the Pharaoh just before the first Passover, that's the same sinful nature that contributes to the divided mess that we live amongst. That's where its source is. So we need to be committed to sharing Jesus with people. That's the solution. We need to remain committed to Jesus for ourselves when the mess gets us down or we get caught up in it. He's the one who can and will sort our mess out. See, the premise of being a Christian is to not fear the mess in our own lives. It's not to be worried about that, but it's to bring it before God. As followers of Jesus, we honestly acknowledge this problem and our need for Jesus to be paying our debt. And that's the bad news, but the good news is that in this same story that God has provided that very thing that we need, a saviour who has paid our debts, a lamb who has been given for us. So this brings out something I'd like to pick up from verse 24, where Jesus says that the blood is the blood of the covenant or of a new covenant. You see, in Jesus, what God was doing as well was making a pact, making a promise, making a, a deal with people. 
because Jesus is given as the perfect sacrifice, what he does for us is actually effective in bringing us to a new freedom, a new uh, relationship, but it's actually more than that. It's a, it's a covenant with him. So we're going to watch another one of those videos now, and this is about covenants in the Bible and the way that there was actually four big ones set up, but that ultimately in Jesus, he establishes a new covenant for us. And I reckon that understanding this is really rich in realizing how we live each day with the knowledge that Jesus died for us. So let's watch it and then we'll pull it all together. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, Listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. 
And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Isn't there so much more to what it means when Jesus says, this is my blood of, a, of the covenant, of the new covenant? We have a new covenant with Jesus, a new promise. And Jesus has established a way for us to know God and to be partnered with him. That passage that we saw from Jeremiah takes us right into that. See, the old covenant didn't fail. Like the video explained, Jesus fulfilled it. Now, I've just upgraded my phone because the last one that I had, it lost a battle with gravity and, and a bit of wind, and the screen smashed on it. And then when I got it fixed, the Touch ID stopped working, um, and you could barely hear when you were making a call, which is kind of like the main purpose of a phone. So the contract was up, and the new iPhone was on the market. So just this week, I went and traded it in and got a new one. We do that, don't we? We trade up our cars. We renovate our kitchens. Even occasionally we buy some new undies. God's not doing that with Jesus. Have you ever hired a car? Maybe, maybe you've flown away somewhere. Well, when you hire a car, you've got to sign an agreement, don't you? You've got to sign a contract. It says things like that you're going to follow the road rules, that you're going to uh, drive it, or you're going to, you've got to nominate who's going to be driving. You're not just going to let anyone drive it. You're going to pick up a hitchhiker and put them in the front, front seat, are you? You might nominate how many kilometres you're going to go and, and organise the time that you're going to bring it back. It's an agreement. It's, a, it's an arrangement. It's a covenant. Well, imagine that you pick up the car, you pull out of the parking lot, you can hire them at the bolo, so let's just imagine that's where you've got it from. And straight away, as you're taking off Park Street, you forget about the speed limit, you open it up, see how fast it can go. Hoon around Oak Street, up Woodburn Street, and then head out to the airstrip. 
And then when you get out to the air, airport, no one's there. You go onto one of the old tarmats and you think, well, I'll drag race it for a little while, pull some donuts, try some handbrake turns, and finally you get a really good burnout happening until you pop one of the tyres on it and you think, oh, heck, I'm dump it in the bush and head home for some lunch. The covenant would be broken, wouldn't it? Okay? Now, you're not likely to do that, I know. It's a bit of a silly example. But here's a more realistic example in a similar scenario. What if you had hired that car and you've taken it away on holidays? You've driven it all day and you get to your destination and it's been a long day. You're really busy. It's busy where you are and you're struggling to find a car park for this car. It's a, it's a different car to what you're used to and, and you finally find one in the underground parking but it's really tight and you're like, oh, and you just try it anyway and you park the car in there without realising that yeah, there's not actually enough room for you and you, as you drive the front in, you put a little scratch on the front bumper. You kind of look at it and you think, oh, they probably won't notice that and head off for the rest of your holiday. And the next day you're out with the family, you fill up with fuel and as you're at the petrol station you see that sign for the $1 extra large super slurper slushy, and you think, oh, that's pretty cheap. How about I pick up one of them for the family? I'll grab one for each member of the family. But before you're even out of the petrol station, what's happened? Your four-year-old has put the slushy all over the upholstery in the back seat. And you start to think, oh, this is a hire car. How am I going to clean that out? Well, the next day you're driving home and it's been raining and raining, which happens when you come back to the north coast. And you tune in your radio to hear that there's actually a chance that there's a flood happening. And the closer you get to home, the more you realise that the rain is getting heavier and heavier. And despite the rain, you just start thinking, mm, if I didn't get that car back by 5pm, they're going to slap me with that extra $80 charge. And so you just speed up a little bit. Speed up thinking that, uh, look, it doesn't really matter too much about this flood. Um, I'm already probably going to be up for a cleaning fee and I'm hoping that they're not going to notice the scratch. I can't have them uh, charging me an extended use fee as well. So it happens. As you're driving along, you come to that flooded causeway and it's the only way for you to get that car back on time. And even though, you know, it could damage the car and risk your family's life, you decide instead to just build up the speed and go for it through the water. And as you're fanging through the water and kind of aquaplaning a little bit, what happens? You spear the car into a broken branch and it pierces straight into the fuel tank and you're stuck there with a dead car that's going to owe you a lot of money. See, I think this is more like the kind of mess that God's people were in. It wasn't one big careless decision to go off and do stupid things, but it was a gradual compromise after compromise after compromise until they were no longer really in relationship with God. The covenant hadn't worn out. It hadn't worn off. They were unfaithful to it. The new covenant that Jesus is talking about here is different in at least two ways. See, the whole premise for this covenant is forgiveness. I'll find that Jeremiah verse for us again. Because this is where he talks about it. The days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant 
with the people of Israel. And it says in there that his new covenant will be based on the forgiveness of their sins. Look at the last couple of lines. For I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Through Jesus' shed blood, sin is forgiven. It's taken away. Humanity generally has let down their end of the bargain. But Jesus has picked up the damages bill. He's paid for it. He's made a new agreement between us and God. He became human to be what people were meant to be in order that he could be swapped in for us, exchanged for us. His blood is poured out for many, it says. That's how he says it. My blood poured out for many. The covenant is a new agreement where we can actually live freely in a relationship and partnership with God because we are forgiven. You, with your trust in Jesus, are already forgiven. And so the second thing, at least, that I think it means is that we partner with God through the Holy Spirit to now live faithfully in the new covenant. That Jeremiah passage speaks about how God's law will just be on people's hearts and minds. Our knowing God personally, our knowing Him day and daily in our life, the Holy Spirit is doing this for us. It's giving us this new life in Him. The Spirit keeps us following Him, keeps us on the narrow road that Jesus has called us to. Through what Jesus has done for you and your faith in it, you're in a new covenant with God. That's the promise. You will inherit what God has promised. I can say that with certainty because Jesus was faithful to those old covenants for you, for me. I can say that with certainty because Jesus has paid the price for you. So the question is, are you living your faith out confidently because of that certainty? Are you living it confidently because of that certainty? Following Jesus means living a forgiven life. It's a covenant of grace. You you see that in what happens with Peter and the other disciples at the end of this passage. Jesus says that the disciples, they're all going to fall away. They're all going to desert him. And they did exactly that. Within 24 hours, they'd all scattered. Peter is adamant that, well, even if those guys are buffheads, I'll remain faithful to you, Jesus. Jesus says plainly back to him, mate, you're going to say three times that you don't even know me and you're going to do it soon. But it's a covenant of grace that Jesus has made with him. See, Peter's not like Judas. There's no pronouncement for Peter denying Jesus that he would be better off not being born. That's Judas. That's rejection of Jesus. But in our relationship with Jesus, the covenant is grace. If you look at verse uh, 28 with me, Jesus says that after I've risen, I will go ahead of you. I will keep leading you. I will keep guiding you. See, Jesus knew he was going to rise. We don't want to miss that. But he was going to keep leading them. Even though they were going to desert him, This is the grace relationship. This is the new covenant. He will keep leading. 
He will keep guiding. This is God in his mercy, not just giving us a second chance to get it right, but it's not just finding common ground so that we can talk it out with him. And it's not just avoiding the problem and getting on with life around a barbecue. This is a relationship and a partnership that guides us through, his, through our life inside his grace. It's a relationship and partnership that forms in us that same character of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, as he offers them the bread and the wine, what does he say to them? He says, take it. Following Jesus is taking Jesus up on this new agreement. I'm trusting he will be gracious to me in my failings. I'm trusting him for forgiveness. I'm trusting that he's leading me home to God. I'm living in partnership with God, serving him and sharing him. I'm living in the freedom that Jesus has bought for me. Is that how we're living? Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for what Jesus has done. And we give you great thanks for the Bible and for these videos that have been able to explain to us these big themes of the Bible that really come to a head here with Jesus. Lord, the covenant that you've made, the promise that you will um, be gracious to us, that you've forgiven our sins, that the price has been paid and we have this freedom to live for you. Lord, I pray that it might be realized among us. Lord, I pray that it be might realized to, to the point that uh, our, our um, emotional and mental health isn't affected. And Lord, I pray that it's realized to the point that we are bold in, in speaking to other people about you. And I pray that it's realized to the point where our relationships with the people around us are, are healed. Lord, in this family of your church here, Lord, in our community, in our own families. And Lord, I just ask that you would, you would write these truths into our heart, Lord, that we might believe them through the week when we need to believe them and when we've forgotten them otherwise. And Lord, thank you that sin is dealt with and thank you that you've brought us into this new life through Jesus. Amen.